0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: A lot of bird vocalizations we understand very little about. The three note call in particular was the most exciting for me. The other calls I'd sort of come across in one way or another before, but the three note frog-like call was very exciting.
0: a new three-note call? But whose call is it? G'day, I'm Ann Jones, and you're listening to Off Track. Well, that three-note call you heard is from a big bird with a big, deep voice. Yep. It's a powerful owl and celebrating the citizen science project that we've got going for science week this year, hoot detective, where you get to help scientists locate owl sounds from recordings from all over Australia. Well, we thought we'd better study up on some of the sounds. So in this episode of Off Track, Joe Kahn is going to explore and this, yeah, this is the first time this particular call has been recorded.
1: My name is Callan Alexander. I'm a keen birdwatcher, and I do research on acoustics and ecology at QT. And I also work for BirdLife Australia in the Threatened Species Program.
2: Callan uses the medium of sound to study birds because sometimes sound is all you can get.
1: A powerflower is what we call a cryptic species. That means they're really, really difficult to detect. So even though we actually have quite a lot of powerful owls in suburban Brisbane, most people probably have never seen a powerful owl before. And the reason for that is because they're really, really good at keeping themselves hidden. They don't really want to be found. So we call them a cryptic species.
2: The first part of Callan's master's research was to record as many powerful owl sounds around Brisbane as he could.
1: So the first thing you have to do is find the owls at each site, which is easier said than done. So to do that, I did dusk and dawn listening sessions. So basically I get there either really early or just as the sun is going down and I stand in a really quiet spot and I listen and I try to pick up where the owls are calling from. Once you hear where they're calling from, then we try and locate where they're roosting during the day. Then I put out two acoustic monitors at each site, and then every two weeks I come back, I try and relocate the owls and for six months I sort of moved the acoustic monitors around with each owl pair so that I could try and capture as many of their vocalisations as possible. We did have an idea of where they would be based on initial findings from the Powerflower project in Brisbane. We'd done a bunch of surveying beforehand so we have a rough idea of where the pairs are but we often don't know exactly where they are in those bigger areas. So I was going out to areas that were known owl territories but didn't necessarily know where their roost sites were.
2: What do you then do with those recordings that you're getting every
1: two weeks? Throughout the course of my project, I amassed about three years of data, and it's impossible to actually listen to three years of data. So I had to build a program that can find alcohols in that data for me.
2: That program is part two of his research. We'll come back to this in more detail in a bit.
1: We also wanted to explore the variance in power file vocalization. So we wanted to understand their repertoire a bit better. So the project was sort of doing those two things at the same time. It's understanding their calling behavior and then building a training data set of their vocalizations. We knew that they make a bunch of different noises. Those noises haven't been quantified or there's not many recordings, there's not many spectrograms. Uh, We wanted to get the data essentially and put it somewhere where it can be used for future study. For the machine learning, we focused on the flowers, what we call their primary vocalization, which is the two note hoot. that if you've heard a powerflower before, that's probably the call that you've heard. Um, So we focused on getting as many of those two note vocalizations as we can, but variety is also really important. So we wanted to capture the site variety. We also wanted to capture variety in males and females, and we wanted to capture as much variety in those individual calls as we could.
2: Was there anything kind of unexpected in that? And did, were you able to find some sort of clearer differences between the male and female two-note calls?
1: Yeah, so what we found with the, the male and female two-note calls actually really interesting. So historically, it was thought that you could tell the difference between male and female powerful owls from the second note of the call. So what they thought was that the female had a significant jump between the lower note and the higher note, uh, and the male not so much. What we found in this study, at least in Queensland, is that's not a reliable predictor of sex. And in fact, the male tends to jump up more from the first note to the second note than the female does.
2: That's an adult female call. And that's a male.
1: we've also found is there is a ton of variation in the way that they vocalize that primary two note call so um, the males have a huge frequency range that they perform in and so do the females and there's actually a, a section where there's almost an overlap so it's actually quite hard to tell the two especially if they're calling sort of in those middle frequencies it's fairly difficult by ear to sex male and female pathways is what we found in this study more difficult than people probably initially thought
2: and so it might be hard to kind of differentiate by ear but did you find that even if there is a little bit of overlap by looking at those spectrograms you can tell the difference in that visual way
1: yes so you can definitely reliably sex male and female pathways from their vocalizations and it all comes down to the frequency so the male's don't really ever, the peak frequency will never really exceed 450 hertz and the females will usually sit above that 450 hertz mark. So the reason for the difference in the frequency with most birds is usually size. So the males are actually one of the very few owl species where the male is larger than the female. So because the male is larger, it's thought that his vocalizations are deeper. And because the female's smaller, she vocalises slightly higher. Why there is so much variation in their calls and um, they, they don't quite overlap, but that almost overlap, I'm not sure why that, that tends to occur.
2: So potentially would a younger male, if it's slightly smaller, would that call be closer to that of the female?
1: What happens with the fledglings is there's a period where they transition to adult plumage and transition to adult calls. So chicks and adults actually sound completely different. You you would not if you heard a chick powerful owl and an adult powerful owl and you'd never heard either one before, you would not be able to tell that it's the same bird. They go through a transition period where they go from their chick trills to an adult call. They make some unusual noises in that period.
2: So awkward awkward transition period correlates to uh, some strange sounds
1: Yeah, to- <laughs> Totally, just like a teenage boy. They uh, there's some weird squeaks and squawks.
2: Did you find anything interesting when it comes to the chick vocalizations?
1: So the chicks are definitely less varied in their vocalizations than the adults. They have that one trill that they make and they tend to just repeat it over and over and over again. In one case, I've even had a chick trilling uh, nearly 600 times in an hour so they just repeat. There are some cases where they vary slightly, so usually the trill will ascend and then descend quite rapidly. Very, very occasionally they will just repeat the same note, so it will just stay in a static frequency, but that's much rarer. One of the most complex vocalizations that the adults make is a squealing sound. So usually powerflowers call in really low frequencies, but their squeal actually goes up to incredibly high frequencies, sometimes even peaking above 10,000 hertz. And it elapses a really, really large sort of vocal range. And they tend to make that squeal when they're mating and when they're feeding their chicks. And sometimes it seems they also do it if they're bickering. Probably the most interesting vocalization that I've found over the course of this study is uh, a three-note sort of conversational... I guess you could refer to it as a cluck, or uh, it almost sounds like a frog. At this stage, we don't know why they make this call. Um, It almost seems like an inquisitive call, so they, they do it when they're unsure of something. I only came across it twice but it seems to be quite a rare call and it's sort of soft and conversational and clucky and you wouldn't pick it as a powerful owl if you heard it.
2: Which begs the question, how do you know it is a powerful owl?
1: So for the study, we have to do something called ground truthing. So if you were just looking at the audio, you couldn't really conclusively say that something is a powerful owl vocalization unless you've seen it in the field. So, when I did all of those field visits every two weeks at the various sites, I would take a recorder of some description with me and I would observe them while I'm there. And that we only included vocalizations in the passive recording if they were also observed in the field by me. All the passive recordings had to be ground truth, basically.
2: Passive recordings, meaning the ones made by putting a sound recorder out for months and months at a time. Does that mean that there could be other calls that exist in those long passive recordings, but that you weren't able to ground
1: truth? hundred percent. The purpose of the study is sort of to form a, a baseline repertoire of calls, but I would hope that there would be more out there that we haven't uncovered yet. And it, it basically would just require more behavioral studies. And there's probably regional variation as well. So I suspect that the owls up here in Queensland sound quite different to the owls down south. And that hasn't been fully explored yet either.
2: Okay, so some of the other sounds, something that you describe as a bleating.
1: Yeah, so the bleating is quite bizarre. It's it's referred to as bleating because it sounds like a like a goat or a sheep or uh, something of that nature, and it's actually quite a common call. You hear it probably it's probably the most common behind the the two note primary vocalization, and it just sounds so bizarre they seem to use it for a whole bunch of reasons but it's mostly contact between the male and the female and between the adults and the chicks so it's, it seems to be sort of like they're, they're conversational when they're close together they tend to use that vocalization.
2: What you're hearing today are powerful owl sounds that have never been recorded before. Cal and Alexander spent two years recording these powerful owls. There's been hooting, trilling, squealing and bleating and that really cool three note call what could possibly be next
1: the grunting we think it's used by males and females and the behavioral reason for the grunting is not totally explored it seems to be in my study more frequent around the mating season the male will usually have a period of grunting and then he'll sort of build up and up and up until he starts his proper two note call Sometimes that two note call will even crescendo and he'll just keep going for a while and it'll pop up to a series of single note calls even. Yeah, their vocalizations are really complex and there's a lot going on there that we still don't understand.
2: You're listening to Off Track on ABC Radio and Podcast. I'm Joe Kahn, and now we're getting into the second part of Callan's project, where he trains a computer algorithm to pick out the owl calls from other sounds.
1: So the, the first step to building a piece of software that can recognize PATHWile calls in a long duration recording is basically a lot of drawing boxes. So what I do is I load an hour file into some software and I go through that hour file manually and I draw a box every single time I found uh, a powerful hour vocalization and I label that vocalization accordingly. When you do this, you do it in an image form. So a spectrogram is a visual representation of audio. So I'm drawing boxes on the, basically a picture of the sound. Then repeat that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and eventually, you get a training data set, which has a bunch of labeled Powerful hour calls. I can feed it into an algorithm. And then hopefully, if it works, that algorithm will be able to pick up that picture in a long-duration picture, essentially. And then what that means is I can feed in 50 hours into the software, and it will hopefully tell me if there is a Powerful hour there or not. And I've done that with I've created two separate recognizers. I've created a recognizer for the chicks and I've created a recognizer for the adults.
2: And so if you put in hours of sound into the algorithm, ecologically, what are some of the things you can understand about the owls in that particular ecosystem?
1: Probably the most exciting thing about this project is that it'll be able to tell us if they've bred successfully. So we're not only answering the question of, are they there? we're answering the question of, are they breeding successfully? It's also helpful even just for monitoring. So nests that we know about, we can put an acoustic recorder on a known nest site and it will tell us when the chicks are starting to fledge. So you get an idea of what time of the year that they're breeding.
2: Is there anything you've come across that becomes a challenge for the acoustic recognizer?
1: Building a recognizer for the power flower was very, very challenging for that reason. So um, because flowers are actually quite active in urban territories, there's a lot of anthropogenic noise. So there's dogs, there's cars, wind also is much more of a problem in those low frequencies where the flowers tend to call. So to counteract that, you actually have to feed those types of noises into the algorithm too. So what I've had to do is I've had to put lots and lots of noise segments into the recognizers too, featuring lots and lots of cars and dogs and bikes. And what I've basically tried to do is make the recognizer have low, a false positive rate as possible. So the adult recognizer works slightly worse than the chick recognizer because the chicks sit in nice, really high frequencies. They sit above everything else. So they're quite easy to detect and avoid all that human made noise. So the adult recognizer works slightly worse, but I've still built it to a point where it has a really good recall rate and the false positive rate is really, really low, most of what the, the recognizer will spit out is will actually be owls, which is really good. It might miss some calls due to that sort of human noise. But because they call because powerful tend to call repeatedly, missing a few calls is not the end of the world.
0: Recognising one species in hours and hours of calls is very cool. And if you'd like to help researchers train up their algorithms, make sure you sign up to become a Hoot Detective. That's the ABC's latest citizen science project linked with Science Week 2021. But it does make me wonder about all the other sounds in that soundscape, not just that one species. Isn't there gigabytes of data in those recordings that is going to waste? Rejected from the OWL studies, for example. Well, Marina Scarpelli is writing a PhD in ecoacoustics at QUT, and she's looking into using the whole soundscape as a tool. Off-track producer Joe Kahn spoke with her as well.
3: Because soundscapes are, we can say, a picture of everything that is emitting sound it can give us information about the environment. So if you think in a natural environment, it can tell us what kind of species are there, how the dynamics of the acoustic communication of these species work. So how early the birds, for example, are starting to emit sounds and the insects, what kind of insects you have there and all these Now, these answers that we can get from sounds, they all have some ecological reason behind. So we know that if an environment is healthy, you expect to have lots of species communicating. And if the species are provided with all the resources they need, they will be emitting sounds and they will be communicating. You said
2: it just then, how sandscapes can give a picture of an environment, which is kind of a funny way to say it, given that it's like sound. But I think in your analysis of sandscapes, you do actually produce some sort of pictures sometimes, don't you?
3: Uh, we have things called spectrograms, that they are a graphical representation of sound. It splits the, the sound wave, into these two dimensions, frequency and time, and it it shows us what's going on. So with this, we can easily compare different environments, see what's going on in different areas, in different soundscapes. How do you go about extracting information from that huge amount of data? A kind of straightforward way that people use to analyse the sound is calculating acoustic indices that extract different features from the sounds and tell us what's going on. We will then analyze it statistically and this will depend on the question. So we use these acoustic indices to generate statistics and answer our research questions.
2: So an acoustic index is sort of like a measuring tool or metric that scientists can apply to a landscape to help them answer questions like how biodiverse is this site?
3: So we have, for example, entropy and acoustic complexity index. Those two, they, are, they were developed based on the assumption that the more complex a soundscape, so the more variety you have in a soundscape, the more biodiversity you have. And there's another one called NDSI, Normalised
2: Difference in Soundscapes Index.
3: And it's a ratio between the anthropony, which is the sounds generated by humans, and the biophony, which are the sounds generated by wildlife, by animals. So it calculates a ratio and gives you a number So the higher number means that you have higher biodiversity and a lower number means you have more human-generated sound. So it gives you kind of a picture of what's going on.
2: Can you explain how that works?
3: Yeah, it's a a bit of, um, let's say, a crude way of doing it. So we know that human-generated sounds, they usually occupy a lower frequency band. So they are low in terms of frequency and wildlife, it's usually in the middle of the frequency bands. So it uses this distinction between the two frequency bands to uh, calculate the ratio. So it's not always true because you can have human sounds that go over the the limited as the, the human frequency usage. So some sounds can go over these and some sounds keep, for example, owls, They go really low in the frequency. They use a really low frequency. So you have some mistakes and some things that are not going to always be 100%. My goal is to test these tools that are sort of fast and more straightforward for people who are not specialists in birds or frogs or insects, because I am not a specialist in any of these groups. I'm interested in sounds and in landscapes in this bigger picture. So I'm testing and analyzing how the acoustic indices to be able to use this as a fast tool for monitoring. We know that humans are constantly changing the environment and we have a lot of habitat loss, biodiversity loss, and we need to have faster tools to quantify how how much we are losing and how much we are changing the environment. So I really believe acoustics is a good tool for that. And that's my main goal using the acoustic indices and not using just one species. It's trying to move forward with acoustic monitoring to um, see this bigger picture and these bigger changes that are happening in ecosystems. So much
0: to be found in sound. Not just joy, but potentially solid ecological data. And there are two things that you can do to dive deeper into sound. The first is to sign up to be a hoot detective, Hoot Detective is the ABC's big citizen science project for this year where you'll get to listen to audio recorded from all over Australia and mark when you hear an owl. So much fun and it helps the scientists. Go to hootdetective.net.au And if you'd prefer a more relaxing listen, then consider searching for Nature Track in your podcast app. Yep, this is the older, wiser sister podcast of Off Track, where I'll be stashing long recordings of the places that I visit in my job at the ABC. These are recordings that are hours and hours long, so you can put them on and listen when you need to concentrate or chill out or just feel like you're not alone in the world. I'm Ann Jones, and Off Track will be back on schedule for next time. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.